The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets, creatives, authors, cuisine. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I think I was just like super lost as a kid about who I actually was being from two different countries and then also like occupying space in both of those countries. And because being in America, it's like Korean, but being in Korea, I'm American. And so it always motivated me to try to dive into it a little bit deeper and find what it meant to me um, and not so much how it meant to other people. But then it's like, I don't know, you, you learn about it and it's like, it's insane that this is something that isn't really taught. In case you missed it, highlights from recent episodes, including the travails of an amateur stand-up comic, the long reach of January 6, a young chef's big break on HBO, and harnessing the power of the gig economy to help senior citizens. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Enjoy full disclosure on NPR, NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at handle fulldradio. And a shout out to my listeners on WVTF Radio IQ. It's Virginia's NPR news station. Get in touch to carry full disclosure on your air. We start with the story of Cole Meyer, a young comedian. He's just fresh out of UCLA who dished on the less glorious aspects of making a name for yourself as a funny man. I hitched this show to your star as it's crossing through <laughs> town. How is this working? Let, let me ask you something. The, the comedians we've had on, Maz Jabrani, Tara Grami, Kyle Grooms is going to be on. They've always had this itch to kind of drop out from the formal track. In fact, many of them did. They couldn't stand school. Did you, you, you clearly were driven to get accepted to school. We're going to excerpt from some of your reels when you were 10 or 11 years old. You were doing this in like boy shorts. I can't mm-hmm. believe it. And yet you still went to college and you got mm-hmm. great grades, but you had the itch to go off and do open mic. Mm-hmm. Well, so I um I chose to go to UCLA over any other school because of the stand-up opportunities in Los Angeles. And then COVID-19 hit and I just never got to do anything uh, in LA. Never just, you know, mm-hmm. kind of felt stuck. Uh, and when I came home to Richmond, just a lot, you know, as probably a lot of people felt, a lot of depression, maybe too much drinking, kind of stuck inside with nothing happening. And what got me out of that was going back to open mics here in Richmond, Virginia. And when I returned to LA, I was like, okay, there is, um, I found it. There's nothing else I want to do. I've been applying to internships. I've been getting rejected. I had roommates like on the busy contract already with their whole investment banking life ahead of them connected. And I was just feeling insecure and aimless. And when I finally got those laughs again and started hearing it, I was like, oh, this is what I need. This is my path and there's nothing else and I'm doing this. Where was that moment? When was that moment? Kind of that moment of inception like, uh-huh, I'm not letting go of this. Well, um, I guess I would say there were two of them. Um, The more recent one uh, was, I believe the summer of 2020, I started working as a waiter at Sandman Comedy Club where I'm performing uh, this weekend. And the owner of the club is so generous in that he gives all of his servers stage time on open mic nights and occasionally lets them like open up a show or do a guest spot which was awesome. And I just remembered going up and 
I had written a bit about a year ago and that I had never done about how every ex of mine came out as gay after we broke up, and which is true. And I'd never done it. I hadn't done stand-up in maybe three, four years, and I was just went up, and I did it, and I don't know if I crushed, but I got the laughs again that I needed, and I was like, oh, this is this this is what I need. As you've talked to other stand-ups before, it's intoxicating. It's, it's a sense or a rush like through your body that I don't know. It probably feels like uh, something that like athletes it's feel when they're talking. Yeah, 100%. 100%. But the earlier inception really was in the second grade when I was seven years old. I was driving home with my mother and she uh, goes, how was your day? And I go, uh, you know, I talked to these teenage girls and they really freaked me out. And I just start going on this rant about how teenage girls talk. My mom laughed so hard that she pulled the car over. When Cole, you have to do stand-up. And I go, what's stand-up? Um, she takes me home. She shows me uh, Louis C.K., which she should not have done. I was far too young. But after that, I was kind of hooked. And I went up at my 2009, eight years old elementary school talent show, second grade. And I did about four minutes. And to this day, the best set I've ever done. Uh, It was a very supportive audience, but uh, I just absolutely crushed. And that was the initial inception. So ever since then, that's always been in the back of my mind. Like, well, you could do stand up, but. I was like, maybe I want to do uh, something in politics or maybe I want to do business and there's something like that. And uh, that moment in 2020 kind of returned me to that vision I had when I was younger of, oh, this is this is it. Nine this years it. old and you did this at your middle elementary school? Elementary, eight years old at my elementary school talent show was the first time I was. So what happened afterwards? The teachers pull you aside, students pull you aside. Was there an affirmation of this or kind of you had to have felt vulnerable up there because it's one thing to put your mom in stitches in the car. Right. And it's another thing to kind of pull that off on the stage. Like, I can't imagine dead time, the, right. the, the pregnant silence that every comic fears right. as an eight-year-old. So uh, that night, I was terrified. I It was hard to get me out of the car to come into the auditorium. Uh, and then um, they sat all the acts, all the little kids in the front two rows, and you couldn't <laughs> sit with your parents. So I was sitting there just panicked. And I... I I can remember. I know how dry my mouth was. Like I kept spitting, but it was like foam. Like I, I, I know what I felt because I still feel it occasionally at a big show of just this endless pit in my stomach. And I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I went up there and I couldn't say my R's. So I said, thank you. Thank you. It's really great to be here with you tonight. And that wasn't a joke, but that got a laugh because I was a little eight-year-old boy. And the second I got a laugh, which I'd never gotten before, it was, it was there. Were you locking eyes with your parents in the audience? Were you trying to? Honestly, not at all because the stage lights were so bright. And oh, wow. I actually kind of appreciate that. Some comics want to be able to see the audience, but uh, I kind of like just being washed out. Like you can hear the laughs, but you can't see any faces. It, it, uh, it kind of just like it uh, makes it more conducive to enter like a flow state, I would say, at least for me personally. So if you're pondering this at age eight or nine, why stay on the track to be a great student and get great grades and get accepted into UCLA? with a reel of your hits. I mean, certain parents are increasingly accepting of the fact that, you know, my kid could go nominally to college, not have to be on the academic fast lane and can really lean into comedy. Mm. Um, My parents always encouraged me to do more comedy. And frankly, I didn't want to do it because, especially as a kid, it was a big stressor. It was a whole to-do. It was like I would perform once once a year, and frankly, I just turned into a little jerk of a gremlin because like, I couldn't type for a couple of years. So I need my mom to help me write it up. And I would dictate to her and she wouldn't type it right. And I would yell at her. And it was like, uh, 
I'd get very insecure and tense and it just like took a lot of energy out of me to do. So um, especially just as a little kid, but more importantly, it was sort of just like a novelty thing for the longest time. It was like once a year, this is my moment of glory. I can be a little celebrity in my small environment and make everyone happy and laugh and be the center of attention. And then it's done. Like I wish when I was eight, nine, 10, 11, that the bug had hit me of like, oh, this is what you have to do. Because you know, Chappelle was 14 taking the train from DC to New York doing sets. Chris Rock started at 15, 16 consistently. A bunch of other of the greats did as well. And it never crossed my mind. I sort of, uh, as an actual possibility of a career, you know, it seemed, frankly, I wasn't sure if I had the mental fortitude to do it because I knew how stressed I was and I knew how much rejection you faced. But that, as I'm talking out loud here, that's not actually entirely true in that the entire time from eight years old, pretty much the only books I would read were autobiographies and memoirs of stand-up comedians. So really? I was still fascinating. Yeah, I've read every con- I read Lenny Bruce's book in seventh grade. I read like George Carlin's autobiography in the eighth grade. Pryor's, uh, I don't think Pryor wrote an autobiography, but it was a biography of Pryor. Just all of the classics, all the greatest. And what everyone said was how much work it is to be good. Like how much dedication it is, how much you have to eat, breathe, and sleep it, how much you should be doing four or five mics a night. You should be broke and hungry and starving and working. And that was a consistent theme in every single book. And frankly, it just seemed daunting, especially as a kid, a young guy with a lot of anxiety. And we'll uh, focus on that for a minute. What is there at this matrix of introversion, extroversions? It's fairly universal. You know, Daryl Hammond, for example, Saturday Night Live visited very dark places, and you wouldn't know. You necessarily looking at the shadow and persona, person that brings so much cheer, who's so on, has so many demons privately. Uh, Peter Sellers various other people who've traversed it, you, you sense a kind of a universality. It's something that ties many comedians together. Mm. Yeah, it, it is. It is 100% universal. It's a, there's like a hole that needs to be filled, I guess, in everyone. And a lot of the time from other comics, it's actual trauma or difficulties or something happened in their childhood or in their life that they can directly pinpoint as the need or as the, the, the maybe a cause or a, uh, as you said, inception or impetus of their need for this approval but really it's just it's just the need to be loved and a lot of people have it a lot of people feel that and i feel you keep unpacking it i mean there's something you see this universe you you're well read in this and you see a universality in kind of depression and anxiety and it takes a lot i mean if you're depressed and anxious you think that the last thing you want to do is go up on that stage and make yourself vulnerable to people right yet there's this desire to get that dopamine hit that desire for affirmation right um, it's something that ties so many comics and performers together, singers even. Right. And people who go up and, and uh, living in the limelight, if you will, as Rush put it. Right. I don't know. I don't know if I can speak to everyone's experience or the specific universality of it, although I will say that it is incredibly consistent. But I can speak to myself in that I was like maybe two, three weeks ago going through like an incredibly... I wouldn't say a full-on depressive episode, but a really hard two, three weeks just on my mental state. And I stopped going to open mics and I skipped some of my shows. I made up excuses and didn't do them. And I just felt worse and worse and worse. And when I finally went up to do my next open mic, I'm normally a writer. I normally write and perform my exact material. Some people just riff. I'm not normally do that, but I just went up and I I said, um, the weird thing about having depression is that you don't 
realize you're depressed. Like you don't think I'm not going to function. The first thought you have is just, man, my bed feels really nice this morning. And I got a chuckle. I didn't get a laugh. It wasn't a full joke. It wasn't, but I got a chuckle. And then I was like, oh, oh, this is, this is it. This is the avenue. This is the, I can project my pain and my insecurity and my, and my everything that I dislike about myself onto these people and create joy out of it. It's kind of incredible. Like that so many comedians are self-deprecating. So many comedians will go up and talk about the horrible things that have happened to them, their experiences in the psych ward, their experiences being bullied, the terrible things their parents said to them. It's horribly dark personal content. And then they get laughs out of it. And I think it's better than any therapy. As a guy who's been in therapy for a lot of years, better than any form of therapy, really, I would say. That was amateur stand-up comedian Cole Meyer in our episode, A Portrait of the Comic as a Young Man, available in its entirety wherever you get your podcasts. On to my recent interview with CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane, who discussed the ever-widening ripples of the January 6, 2021 attack and closed us out with his advice for aspiring TV journalists. You've been in the Beltway and federal government area for nearly 20 years covering uh, these personalities and these megatrends and, and mini trends. And I got I to gotta ask you, I could never, as a, you know, a journalist five years ago, 10 years ago, have scripted January 6th. And you were in the belly of the beast then to say, you know, Donald Trump was a reality character who really rose to prominence with this dark horse bid in 2015. And there was an assault on the Capitol, even the Confederate flag coming into the Senate floor. That did not happen in 1865 or 1863 or anything like this. And we saw an echo of that in Brazil last week. And then two years after this, you have McCarthy dealing with kind of the residue, the detritus of this and trying to whip his base into shape and, and make the best of a very thin majority. And you're still covering this. I mean, you have Big O Barnett, the infamous character from Arkansas who stuck his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk and you know, left her a quarter and his fingers were bloodied and he took some of her, his, her stationery. He's still seeking a sentence and he's out there fundraising at the same time and making money on it. This was really a, a, a mega event and it continues to haunt the discourse. Here's where we are in the largest prosecution in American history. They have charged about 950 people for their roles in the U.S. Capitol attack of 2021. About half of them, roughly, have either pleaded guilty or gone on trial and been convicted. Zero of these 950 people have been acquitted by a jury here in Washington, D.C. Zero. That means the Department of Justice has secured convictions against every single January 6th defendant they've brought to trial before a jury, at least partially. But the Department of Justice has been unambiguous about this, saying that there are hundreds more arrests still to come, that they have hundreds more people they're still seeking for being part of the U.S. Capitol attack, which means this is a story and this is an investigation which will cross years and years to come. It's the biggest investigation, biggest prosecution in the history of the country. Why wasn't a person like this low-hanging fruit? He effectively broadcasted it. He put it on social media. We're two years removed from this event, and he's facing what I understand is maybe a year in prison, and he's sure. fundraising simultaneously on it. You've I, covered it quite a bit. I, I get that question a lot. These defendants are not making the argument in their filings or before trial juries that they weren't here or it wasn't them or it's a mistaken identity. Nobody's arguing that. There's too many cameras, 1,700 of them at the U.S. Capitol. Too many cell phones were rolling, too many Facebook posts and Instagram posts to deny 
you were there on restricted grounds. The defendants are using any of a variety of defenses that we've heard commonly, one being that they didn't know the grounds were restricted at that moment. They thought that there was, you know, it was okay to be there. The police sure. had invited them in, to which the prosecutors and even the judges respond, what about the roaring alarms, broken glass, smashing right. pepper spray, and violence that was happening around you? Did that not give you a clue you shouldn't have been there? First, you it- saw the retired NYPD officer, Webster, was saying, I pulled this mask off the Capitol Police officer so that he could see my face. I mean, some of the stuff was just blatantly risible. It, it seems like it was out of an SNL skit. These defenses uh, are not working, Um, certainly not a trial. There are those who argue that they were combating, fighting police in some type of self-defense or through what they characterize as the public authority defense. That means that they believe they were specifically commanded by then-President Trump to do what they did. When he gave that speech at the White House ellipse, they believed it was an order that they were following. That defense hasn't worked. they got to try a whole series of other defenses. So far, none of them is working. As for the shorter jail terms, prison terms, um, some of these defendants are getting weeks or months in prison for their guilty pleas, but those are the defendants who are pleading guilty to misdemeanors. Uh, Those are the ones who the Justice Department is cutting misdemeanor deals with because those defendants didn't break anything, didn't take anything, didn't plan, didn't come equipped with weapons, didn't assault anyone, and generally left only a matter of minutes after they arrived. Those are the defendants getting very short prison sentences. But the ones on trial as we speak, higher level defendants, those charged with seditious conspiracy, accused of plotting and planning, of bringing gear, bringing weapons, of bringing guns in some cases... They're not facing prison sentences of weeks and months. They're facing sentences of many years. And the one case you just mentioned, a guy named Thomas Webster, a former New York police officer who was on the mayor's detail back when he was a police officer. He was convicted at trial and sentenced to the longest prison sentence so far. Ten years. His prison sentence is scheduled to end in the 2030s. So there are major cases out there, too, and more of those are still to come. Suppose a handful of students at the Newhouse School, they invite you up there, they take you out to Dinosaur Barbecue, like, Scott McFarlane, share your best share your best wisdom with us. I want to go into journalism, but I see the networks are losing viewership. Digital has nickels that don't pay the bills the way the $10 bills did for TV news and, and newspapers. How do I build it? Where do I go? What do I do? And take your time on this, because this is kind of a through line for many of our episodes. The best practices that may have been there for you 25 years ago really don't apply as much today. It doesn't matter what your platform is. It doesn't matter where you want to work or what platform you want to work on. If you have enterprising content, you have a future. You can earn a good living. You can have job security. You can work where you want to work, near your family or not. You can live in the sunshine, live in the cold, live in California, Hawaii, New York, or Pennsylvania. If you have enterprise content, which means something I can't find on my phone right now, something I can't just Google before the 11 o'clock news starts on the local TV station, before the morning drive radio show begins, before the morning newspaper prints and goes to some number of Americans. Enterprise news content is king. It really works on social media. It really works on traditional linear media because it's something somebody doesn't know. And the students go, yeah, of course, of course, of course. But I press them. Are you sure you know? Because what are you pursuing today? What type of content, news or otherwise, are you pursuing today? Is it something that hasn't been done yet? And if the answer is, no, it's something that's been done already, then you're pursuing the wrong type of content. And you're not going to have a future if that's your mindset. So 
when I'm covering Capitol Hill along with about two to 3,000 other journalists, <laughs> it's a challenge to find something somebody else isn't pursuing already. Um, so that's the challenge. And it's not as hard as it sounds because there are far more stories on Earth than there are journalists. There's far more stories in Richmond, Roanoke, Blacksburg, Topeka, Tacoma, and Tulsa than there are journalists. You just got to find one somebody hasn't found yet. I covered January 6th uh, pretty aggressively for the last couple of years, and there are other journalists doing it as well. Not enough. Because there are 950 defendants, there is a calamitous American moment still being investigated, there are political and legal implications to every day that goes by, and there aren't enough of us. So it's easier to find enterprise content, and it's easier to command an audience. But you can also say you can also say in defense of these uh, these greenhorns who are eighteen to twenty two, there isn't a very guaranteed career path anymore. It's not like you know you go work your butt off in local and then you get tapped regional or by a newspaper. You do multimedia somewhere and then the Today Show or the nightly news comes knocking and you you pay your dues there. Right now, it's very amorphous and unclear what happens to network news. Or you're being asked to podcast. You're being asked to tweet. You're being asked to go directly to digital, hoping that you know you cover yourself in glory and could get competing offers if need be or anything. But who knows what this is going to look like in five years? Whatever living there is to eke out of this, and I think there's, I think there's quite a, a long distance future for for journalism. It's yours if you want it. If you enterprise. And I don't just mean find scoops and find stories others don't. I'm saying just find your own content, produce your own content that isn't replicated elsewhere. Uh, find a different approach to it, find a different angle to it, a different voice in any meaning of that phrase that somebody else has. As long as you're distinctive in what you're delivering, there's a future for you. I mean, I'm absolutely enamored to go each day to work for CBS News, the, 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 the most legendary broadcast outlet in U.S. history, the one I grew up watching and listening to, I get to work for them. And it ain't because I'm a, a fashion model. And it ain't because you know, everybody's dying <laughs> to fun. see what my hair looks like or my shirt looks like. It's because I, I think at some point somebody recognized I can bring some content others weren't offering at that time. Or I can, I'm pretty good at finding nuggets or scoops or at least a different way of presenting news than others might. And that's what I would tell journalism students. If you can do that, you go anywhere you want to. You can you can earn a good living. You can live where you want to live, have a house, have a wife, have kids, coach the little league baseball team after you get off work if you enterprise. That's true for disc jockeys, sports announcers, news reporters, strategic communicators, public relations professionals, advertisers, anybody in the communications field. 2023 is still very young. Do you care to make one or two predictions before we let you go? See, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to say debt ceiling again. No, you don't have to. Tempting as it might be. um, I think one prediction that it's bold is I think what you saw the week they had that House Speaker vote. Remember all those great camera angles you had where you got to see all the negotiations, the guy get put in a headlock, the the jawing, the arguing. That's a rarity. They usually don't let those cameras go into the House chamber only because a speaker hadn't been chosen yet were special rules adopted allowing that to happen. In the time since, those cameras have been removed and we're back to the old C-SPAN, wide-shot, grainy camera angles of Congress. I bet it goes back. There's a bipartisan push to try to make the impossible happen, which is get Congress to allow cameras to show its warts and all. The empty chairs, the jawboning, the things that they may, may not want America to see. I think it goes the other way. That was CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane. The episode is called capital formations. Full disclosure, stay with us.
This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our radio listeners on WVTF Radio IQ News across the great state of Virginia and even a bit beyond. Get in touch to carry full disclosure on your air. My messages are always open. If you are just joining us, welcome to another Full Disclosure Rewind. In case you missed any of our recent episodes, in one minute, he was a 20-year-old college dropout looking to make rent by gigging at restaurants and cafes. In the next, he suddenly gets a call from a casting agent for an HBO cooking series and comes back to town with $300,000 in grand prize money. Life comes at you fast, explains Chef Daniel Harthausen. Winner of season one of The Big Brunch on HBO Max. I'm fascinated by your career arc because we were discussing offline kind of some of the travails of starting out as a chef in your early 20s and finding the right gig and jumping from place to place. Tell us how you got here and how this big opportunity landed on your lap. Yeah, it's a funny, funny journey. I mean, I, I moved to Richmond with the intention to learn how to cook and I was all but 19, 18, 19 years old, dropped out of college after my first year. Moved up here, was like, this is like the closest city I lived. I was in Newport News at the time. And I was like, I need to find a restaurant to work in. From there, it was kind of just like a combination of needing to make rent and uh, having a job and also trying to learn. And so it was really just a, a product of needing to get a bunch of money. And so I was working like two jobs, six days a week. But from there, it was kind of like, I was able to ingest a lot of this a lot from this industry and try to like learn as much as I can, you know, balancing at the time I was doing um, barista work. And then I was also working in a kitchen late at night. And then from there, you know, it was like, I actually, uh, at my job at uh, Alchemy Coffee in, in Richmond, I was able to, Eric who runs it was able to give me the my first opportunity of like cooking what I wanted to. It was like, I didn't really understand the idea of a pop-up at the time, but it was kind of like, he was like, Hey, if you want to cook some food, like, so back up, back up for yeah, me. Yeah. Was there parental heartbreak with the dropping dropping out? Oh yeah. I mean it was kind of like uh you like getting kicked out of the house, couch surfing for six months, and then like saving up enough money to find my own place kind of you situation. Just got, college just wasn't for you. You got the cooking itch? I didn't get the cooking itch when I dropped out. I just wasn't I just knew it wasn't where I wanted to be. I was in for I was gonna go into the medical field. I was like in a accelerated like master's program and kind of had it all laid out. One of those things where it's like you see where you're at like eight years from now and you're starting right now. And it was kind of like I got a little nervous after the first year and I was like, I don't think I wanna be here. And then it was one of those moments where up to that point, I think in my life, I hadn't been very aware of what I really wanted to do. And so at that moment I was like, Maybe you should figure that out for yourself. Where did you go for this vision quest? I mean, what were you talking to people? Was there see we 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 like to dwell on these moments of inception, like these aha moments. Were there mentors that you sought out? Was there an exploratory committee? Did you spend weekends in the big city? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, it was like a lot more dreary than that. I feel like when I first went to college, I was like so stressed out and I didn't really know why. And I hadn't dealt with that amount of stress, even though I like I've consider myself somebody who works really well under pressure. From that, you know, you get into like drugs and alcohol partying, things like this, and you start to like really question like what you're even doing there. And for me, it was a lot of solitary moments, I think, mm. you know, trying to do well in school because I knew that's what I had to do. 
but I didn't want to. And then from there, the stress kind of pushed me into these other avenues that I also didn't want to be a part of because I knew it was hurting me ultimately. So yeah, and it's and it's funny because when you take the time to really like look at yourself in those moments where you know something's wrong, but you can't really figure it out, you allow yourself the opportunity to grow and find something that you really want to be in and find out who you truly want to be. You know, all that to say, it was kind of like, I didn't figure out that moment where I wanted to be a chef until I needed a job, mm. <laughs> you know, and the first place that would take me was the kitchen. Um, I think that's a, a likely story for a lot of people. But for me, it was like immediately, I think when I stepped foot and I started to work, I like, I loved it. Mm. It's kind of that moment where you like find that calm in your head. Like sometimes when you have so many things going on, you can't really concentrate and you're just trying to like keep it all together. When I'm cooking, it's like everything kind of goes silent and I'm kind of just like focused on what I'm doing. And I became addicted to that sensation almost because I had never felt something like that before. Wow. And and yeah, it's it, that was like the ultimate shifting point, I think. You know, if I would never have dropped out of college, I would have never gotten that job. I would never figured out that I loved this and I would never be where I am today. Tell me about your upbringing. So was it spent in the kitchen or mentored by people who had great culinary skills? Yeah. Um, you know, my parents divorced when I was younger, but my stepmom who moved in with us uh, when I was around nine or 10, an amazing cook. And she was essentially like, you know, we're one of those families. We never, you know, we never ate out. We always ate in. My mom cooked every meal, breakfast, packed lunch, dinner ate as a family. But it wasn't ever like a thing where like, you know, I loved it because it was also one of the times like where we could also be together as a family. We were a little detached, I think. Family is like very conservative Korean religious family and uh, it was there's a lot of rules around that kind of come with that upbringing, but very talented cook. My grandmother lived with us for I think half of my childhood, and so she would cook in the kitchen a lot. And there was a lot of times where like I mean, you know, when I think back to it, in context of like my occupation now, it's like, yeah, like I loved eating, obviously, but I also loved watching and like ingesting. And it was that moment where I was like, kind of when you find out you're obsessed with learning something, I don't know if it was like inherently something that was that like I was born with. I wouldn't say that, but it was more of like this thing where I was curious as to why there were so many rituals around Korean food that I didn't know existed. I could just observe because they would do the same things whenever they were making certain types of kimchi. They would do the same things when they're making like, you know, marinated crabs like kanjang gejang or like when they would do things around certain certain holidays and like I would always see the same same dishes during chuseok or like New Year. And it was like these like patterns that I started to pick up when I was younger that I started to get like really, really obsessed about. And then I was like, I think when I started to ask questions was when there was a little bit of a shift in my younger years um, because there was a bit of a pushback. I don't want to speak for like all Korean Americans experiences, but at least in my experience, they said like men aren't supposed to cook. You're not supposed to like, you know, this isn't something you need to learn, like focus on other stuff. And I think that was a, like, and then just being like a preteen at the time, I was like, why not? Like, I want to learn. Like, why are you telling me I can't do this? Just like, feeling a little rebellious. And so that was a little bit another motivator for me. But all that to say, I mean, I think I was very fortunate to grow up with two women that knew that were extremely good cooks. And I think it's a it's a big part of the baseline for me to know like what tastes good, which I think is a huge part for chefs need they need to have. Um and it and I was very fortunate to like kind of figure that out in my own little realm with Korean food. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Daniel Hardhausen. He's the chef and owner of Young Mother RVA and 
bit of a TV celebrity. He won season one of The Big Brunch on HBO Max as hosted by Dan Levy of, of uh, Schitt's Creek. I guess I'm allowed to say that on yeah. <laughs> uh, public radio. Uh, you spent time abroad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so military family, dad's in the Air Force, spent a little bit of time in Germany, lived in Okinawa, Japan, and lived in uh, Pyeongtaek, Korea. It's about an hour and a half south of Seoul. So was there time in like you know the Yangyam district or in Seoul itself, spending time with the quality foods there? I mean, I tried to steep myself in New York and Los Angeles. I'm a huge fan of the cuisine. I mean, we even have it here in Richmond, yeah, to a certain extent. Yeah, it's it's fun. I was like, um, I got to spend my freshman year of high school in Korea, and it was kind of a fun time to just like public transportation in Korea is amazing. So it's like you can just kind of get around anywhere, and it was a fun time to be able to like you know take the train into Seoul, go to Itaewon go to Myeongdong, like bigger market areas. And also just kind of like, I didn't know a lot about food back then, but it was kind of just like any, like I remember from an early age, I always like had the instinct that if there was like a line somewhere that I should go eat there. Mm. And so if there was like a street cart with a huge line, I was like, I'm going to go see what they're cooking. And then usually it'd be like really good hot dog or like tteokbokki or something like that. Right. But it was kind of this experience. I think when I was there where I was just trying to like Again, like, you know, at the time I didn't have a lot of, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be a chef one day. So I need to like figure all this stuff out. But it was all these like essentially just like happy kind of like high school memories I was having with this traveling through this country that was, you know, I knew I was a part of the culture, but I was also like, I'm a Korean American. So right. it was like another aspect of like learning about myself in the context of being in Korea, but also just kind of like hanging out with friends. The Japanese and Koreans seem to have a love-hate relationship. It's fraught with bad history and everything, but there's cuisine overlap. There's appreciation. I mean, you're you're touching a sensitive area. It is. Yeah. Uh, it's a huge sensitive area. And I, I think it's the biggest motivator for me to cook the way that I'm I'm doing right now. I mean, Japanese occupation of Korea is like one of the I mean, most sensitive topics. I mean, even from like 2018, they had the like a World Cup reporter said that Korea became more prosperous because of Japanese occupation. And it's like, you know, it was a huge hit to the South Korean people. And it's, it is, it's a very sensitive topic and it's even, even sensitive enough for like even doing what I'm doing right now, where I've, I've received like messages and stuff asking me like, why, why would you do this? Mm. Cause there's so much work in place to kind of push out Japanese culture from the, um, from South Korean culture. And it, and it is something that I think I respect the sensitive nature to it. And there's even ties to my family, even me as a person being part Japanese that comes from that time. But I think there's something that needs to be said about how those cultures overlap because of this traumatic event. And without that, without kind of touching on it or exploring it, you don't allow people that find identity within being Korean, Japanese, or even Korean American, or any of these concepts of these cultures or these countries that come together and influence each other, not having some sort of like growth in figuring out who you want to become. I think I was just like super lost as a kid about who I actually was being from two different countries and then also like occupying space in both of those countries. Sure. Because being in America, it's like I'm Korean, but being in Korea, I'm American. Mm. And so it always motivated me to try to dive into it a little bit deeper and find what it meant to me um, and not so much how it meant to other people. You learn about it and it's like, it's insane that this is something that isn't really taught. I didn't learn about Japanese occupation until I was like 19. To like I was researching it myself and I was like, never, it was never presented in history books. And even though it's like the whole base of the Korean war is through Japanese occupation, them getting pushed out during world war two and then having it split up between two territories that were supposed to be temporary. Right. Like, but trying to find those similarities, I think 
gives narrative to dishes that aren't really allowed to tell their story. I don't know. The food culture is weird. When you when you see something that starts trending or you see something that like does really well because it tastes good or it looks great, I think at certain points like that's amazing for that country's culture or for to kind of like prop up somebody's food culture, but it kind of strips it from its identity and you don't allow it to tell its actual story of why it exists. Hmm. I think it's really important that if we're going to start playing with different ingredients or doing different techniques or understanding traditional recipes, we need to also understand the context of why those things exist. Tell me about getting here, the big city, as yeah. it were, coming from uh, the Tidewater region. Was yeah. it in getting here? Richard, did you get off like a Greyhound bus? Was it like with barely like $5 in your wallet and a dusty suitcase that split apart on the road? We, uh, so I got, I, I convinced my friend to move up with me. Uh, my friend was going to ODU at the time and I was like, I convinced them somehow to go to VCU. And I was like, dude, move up with me. Let's do this. We took his beaten down Prius, packed it up with all our stuff. And then we got a three bedroom apartment or like a house on a, on Clay Street. That was like $800 in rent for everyone. We got another roommate and it was kind of just like, it was beaten down, but we were like so happy we had our own place. Yeah, And it was like, I remember we used to just like walk around at night and it's like, you know, we were, cause we were like from Newport news. So it was Jackson Ward? Uh, like, uh, Carver area. Carver area. Yeah. yeah. So like, you know, he was like close to VCU, but I was like, you know, I was riding my bike around everywhere. I was like, I was like walking and I was just like, oh my God. It's like the first time I lived in like a city in America. Isn't that terrifying though? I mean. It was like terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. You know, it was kind of like, it was a new, ex- I was like, I think I'm a, I'm a fiend for new experiences. So I was kind yeah. of just like, this is awesome. Like it's something new. So how does that, I mean, you, you, you have in your mind that you're going to gig through this to p- get rent and some beer money. How does it work? I mean, it was just a, a matter of getting money in because I didn't have any support from my family or anything like that. And it was kind of just like, at this point I was on my own. It was a scary thing at first. I remember being like, oh, oh, I'm like on my own. But again, it was just like, it was, it was exhilarating to be like, Oh, I'm on my own. Like I can, I got to figure this out. And so it was just like, kind of like dropping resumes off to places. I didn't know how to make a resume. So I just kind of like typed up, I guess what would be considered a cover letter. What did you have in the back of your mind? You were going to wash dishes or do double gigs or barista. There was always, this is really before Uber sets foot in the the full gig economy. You couldn't quite DoorDash or do other things back then or work Amazon deliveries. You really had to show up in bus tables or barista somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it was... You know, everyone starts off as like a dishwasher or like a busboy or something like that. Luckily, the places that I worked at, I could just jump right on the line. And it was like, I don't know if it was some the way that I talked or the way that I like wanted to work. It was weird. I remember- They let you work as a line chef? They let, they let me work on the line. Um, I think it was like a combination of like needing somebody and also like maybe they were just like- So did you fake it till you make it? I mean, did you know how to work online? I guess so. But I just like, I think in those moments, I wanted it so bad. I wanted to work as a cook so bad that when I walked in and tried to apply to a place and they were like, hey, like, you know, we can start you off here. And I'm like, well, if there's an opportunity to like work on the line, like cold side or garmage or salads, whatever, like I would love to do that. And I was like, if you like, you know, we have stages. And so like you get to like, work for two hours and they could see what you can do essentially. And I would go in there and like, before I would go in, I would study the entire menu. I'd have like flashcards of each dish and like everything that went into it that was set on the menu. And I would kind of like sit there and like come an hour before and just watch, see how people are setting things up. And then like when I actually have to like come in for my stage, I would just do whatever they told me to. Like if they said to do something, I would just go and do it. And no one called you on this. No one called me on it. And it was one of those things where it wasn't it wasn't necessarily that I was doing bad work. I was just listening to everything they were saying, which I found out from an early age is like 
if you want to be in this industry, you just, you have to listen. All you have to do is just keep an open ear, keep an open mind and work really hard. That was Chef Daniel Hardhausen, winner of season one of The Big Brunch on HBO Max. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Finally, I recently had founder Paige Wilson in studio to talk about her four-year-old startup, Neighbor Force, which is kind of like the Uber of help for senior citizens. Thank you for coming on. I've been thinking about this. We did an episode with a daughter in Northern Virginia who had to take care of her mother who was in memory care and the many awful things she learned about the system and the safety net in the final two years of her mother's life. And you have this startup here, which is getting headlines. I have a friend who works for you in our circles. I Clearly, my father is aging. We have neighbors who are aging. I know the many boomers and their children who are kind of sandwiched in between generations. And certainly, this has been put in sharp relief by the pandemic, where Many of us has counted on our in-laws and our parents to help us take care of children. We are increasingly taking care of our parents and grandparents. Absolutely, You are in a sweet but uncomfortable spot. Yes. And by the way, there are a lot of people that are taking care of children and parents. Those are the sandwich caregivers. But mm. yes, we are in this position where as the country ages, 11,000 baby boomers are turning 65 every single day. And, you know, as we age... Sometimes we start to slow down and we might need a hand here and there. And throughout history, we've always relied on family as that first line of defense, either family or friends or neighbors. But families are more dispersed. They've moved away. They're busier. They're sandwiched, still raising children. So it creates a lot of demand for what we're doing. I remember I was, a per I was at a personal finance magazine at the turn of the century, and we used to have people visiting us, investors talking about the great future for artificial hips and knees, considering aging baby boomers. And now they're at a certain age where really the care matters and you can't take anything for granted. All that stands between someone and maybe economic ruin is a fall. Absolutely. That's how Neighbor Force started, by the way. So I spent the bulk of my career in finance roles, mostly in Richmond, Virginia, and mostly in large corporate environments. But about 10 years ago, my mom broke her hip and that was the beginning. All of a sudden, she started needing just little bits of help. Maybe it was getting her to the beauty parlor. Maybe it was helping set up the bridge table. The one that I detested the most was reprogramming the remote. <laughs> and I was the alpha daughter. I lived five minutes from my mom, loved her to pieces, and wanted to help her with all those things. But I had this demanding career. I was raising a teenage daughter. I was widowed young, so I was a single parent. And I just couldn't be there all the time. Tell us about that. You were a full speed ahead banker back in this iteration. Absolutely. I was an investment banker at the time. So I traveled a lot. And like I said, I, I lived very close to my mom and we were very, very close. My mother was widowed young. So we're a bunch of strong, independent women. But I couldn't be there. And I could see that she didn't even like asking. She felt like a burden. She mm. knew I had my own life and that I was busy. And so I started looking for backup only to find there really was nothing. Once she got to the point that she needed an aide or a nurse, say home care or home health, lots of options. But she didn't need that yet. It was pretty binary. Aid, Absolutely. Aid versus, you know, outside assisted living she versus She didn't need nothing. a babysitter. She didn't need yeah. somebody in scrubs sitting there for four to eight hours. Literally, she just needed, I kept saying, another me. 
I have a brother, but you know how that goes sometimes. Couldn't count on him. And so really, I just kept thinking, I, I just need a, a, a clone, another me. I want to push a button and somebody like me shows up to help. Paige, can you explain for our listeners what the extent of the social safety net is for older people in 2023? I mean, Social Security, Medicare, various other things. We generally don't like to think about how we'll pay for long-term care, or it is it has nearly bankrupted several companies that didn't fully prepare for it, the kind of the actuarial table. So it's kind of blindsided a generation. But what have you learned or what can you and can you not take for granted in terms of what you put away? Yes, it's very expensive aging. It's not for sissies. <laughs> now, the good news is today's seniors, at least a portion of them, have a lot of resources. So 56 cents of every dollar spent today is by somebody over 65, and 83% of household wealth is held by seniors. But there's also a lot of poverty. I just left the Commonwealth Council on Aging meeting, and in the state of Virginia, over 10% of people over 65 are below the poverty level. So that's very, very tough, and governments are struggling to come up with solutions for that. And it stems with everybody wants to age in their home. That's number one. We build communities around us and we want to stay there as we age, but it becomes more and more difficult. And so while there are more and more solutions to help people age in their home and different senior living options, there is a period of time where people need what we're doing, which is really just that helpful hand from a neighbor for an hour or two. And that can make huge difference in somebody staying in their home. What does a social security cover in the grand scheme of things? I know a lot of people wait to get to Medicare age, but Social Security, if you were taking that for granted or if you didn't fund a 401k or an IRA for most of your life, what in your experience has been the contribution or the backstop or safety net of Social Security? I'm not an expert on any of that, to be honest. And neighbor force is private pay. As most in-home services are, even when you start at home care, it's not covered by insurance, by the way. So it is very expensive. Living in a senior living community, the average cost is almost $7,000 a month. Mm. So I doubt Social Security is covering the bulk of that for most people. And a lot of this is precipitated, as you say, by a fall. There are very uh, tough-minded seniors out there who've been independent all their lives. They don't want to count on people. Maybe their kids are in Phoenix sure. or Miami, but something happens in the bathtub or on wet leaves in the backyard. Yeah, sometimes that's the catalyst, but it can be all kinds of things. Maybe they have macular degeneration. They've given up driving. Uh, maybe we have a, a doctor who's 97 who's a client, and he's fully capable of doing everything but bending over and taking out his recycling can mm. to the curb. So he has a neighbor that helps with that. And we have all the time, our clients, average age is 83. 80% are still living in their home. That's where they want to be. So take me back to the experience with your mother and the genesis of Neighbor Force and the idea and what you had to do kind of as a very strong-minded woman helping another strong one woman <laughs> and the pieces you have to put together as a banker. We know banker hours are crazy. You're yes. traveling, working on deals left and right. It How was, did you cobble that together? It was very, very challenging. And you know, our parents raise us. And so helping them as they age is one of the greatest things that we can do for them and for ourselves. So it was very fulfilling, but it was also very straining. And again, I didn't really want her to feel like she was a burden. So I tried to hide that from her. And there came a point in time where I was lucky. I worked for a large employer and I actually took family medical leave for four weeks and I was in a producer role. So that was pretty tough, but they were supportive because something had to give between my mom and my job and my daughter. So we got through it. But she ended up going on hospice and she was on hospice for a couple of years. 
That was a long, tough period. So after she passed away, I changed jobs. I moved cities. I needed a fresh break. Threw myself into this investment banking job, and I loved it, and it was great, and I made a lot of money, and it was very fulfilling, but it just kept nagging me. I saw my friends starting to go through this, and I knew what they were dealing with, and I just kept thinking, the time when I was going through it, why is there nowhere to turn for this? And so I started doing research. I had no idea about these aging demographics. Some people call it the silver tsunami. Mm -hmm. These baby boomers, the number of people over 80 is tripling in the next three decades. Now, I've been told by gerontologists that's ageist, so we don't want to say silver tsunami. It's an age wave, Mm -hmm. a demographic shift. But clearly, this was a growing problem. Then you coupled in some of the demographics I saw about family caregivers. Literally, the number of family caregivers is dropping in half between now and 2050. And it's because boomers had smaller families. I had one daughter, right? And so armed with that, I really started thinking about how do we bridge these people between when they're fully independent and when they start needing traditional care, that piece that I went through with my mother. And Why am I reminded of the extended family in Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory <laughs> with grandpa and grandma? Or if I'm looking back at Little House on the Prairie, is this, is this kind of hokey for me to think of time was before all of these safety nets and interventions and family leave, we would live with extended family or there would Absolutely. be a bigger family in an agrarian age that would help take care of the older people or maybe assume the deed on the house or something like that. Yes. And that's still happening. And it's interesting. It's culturally different cultures treat it differently. but I think today's older adults are more independent and they don't want to feel like they're having to rely on their family for all of those things. And so, you know, that's where we come in. But as I was putting together kind of the case for this, two things happened that were all of a sudden an aha moment, made it clear as day. So I really wasn't looking to solve this per se. I just was interested in it. Uh And I had moved to Washington, D.C., taking this new job after my mom died. And after having lived in Richmond my whole life, I thought, well, gosh, I need to get involved in the community. So what can I do that is not a big commitment? Meals on Wheels seemed like the perfect answer. Mm. One day a week, hey, I like old people. That'll make me feel good. Give back in the community. Well, the problem was Meals on Wheels said, great, we'd love to have you. Do you want to sign up for every Wednesday or every Friday? Well, I couldn't commit to every anything because I had this big job and I traveled all the time. So that was a little disappointing. And then... Not long after that, I was talking to someone in Richmond and a friend of mine, and she let on that she was driving for Uber. And I thought, well, that's interesting. She used to be a lawyer. And I said, so what, what's that about? And she said, you know, Paige, I left my law career several years ago to finish raising my two boys. They're now in college. And I wake up in the morning and I'm a little bit lost. I have no purpose. I'm used to helping people. I don't want to go back to my law career. That ship has sailed. And to be honest, I don't really want a part-time job because even though it's part-time, it's scheduled. Mm. And I'm 52 years old and I love where I've earned this right to do what I want when I want. And so Uber lets me, if I've got an afternoon free, I go out and I can talk to people. And that really was the light bulb because I thought, wait, I bet there are a lot of people like her or like me, that if they could do it an hour or two a day when it suited them, they might step in and be that backup son or daughter. That was Paige Wilson, founder and CEO of NeighborForce. Catch these episodes and hundreds and hundreds more in their entirety wherever you get your audio fix. We are on NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. 
Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. Follow on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The handle is Full D Radio. And catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. A shout out to my listeners on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ News. Message me to carry this program on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.